Hey friends, I'm Stacy and I'm Liz and we love chatting about young adult books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? Each month, we'll feature one book and discuss its highlights. You know, the things that made us love it. We'll also share the things that didn't knock our socks off. Then we'll explore what the book taught us and how it inspired a curiosity of information well after the story finished. So now, let's get on with our episode. to another episode of the Curious Reader Podcast. And if you are one of our faithful listeners, please take the time to review us on Podbean or in your favorite podcast listening app. Your likes and reviews help us out greatly and helps others find our program. If you enjoy what we have to say, please take the time to let us know and tell your friends. So I think we have a pretty fabulous book to talk about today, but before we do, I thought we could just chat a little bit about YA books in general. So I just saw that the final book in the Inheritance Game trilogy will be coming out in August, and I am super excited about it. It will be titled The Final Gambit. And honestly, I love that title. I don't know why. I think I just like saying Gambit. I think that's why. It's like, Gambit. Is he your favorite X-Men? Because he's my favorite X-Men. I didn't even know he was an X-Men. Sorry. Don't know anything about that. He's Cajun. Oops. Well, I like Gambit. I just like saying it. Um, but... Honestly, I also think that I like trilogies. I think it is the perfect number for a series. But how about you, Liz? Do you prefer a longer series or something that's just made up a few books? Well, Stacy, as you know, I never have a short answer about anything. <laughs> and um, that's going to be true here, too. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of a binge reader. My favorite way to read a book is all in one sitting. Mm. Um, so I do love like a trilogy that I can read all in one sitting, like all in one weekend, not all in one sitting. That, that would be a lot, but like all over the course mm -hmm. of one weekend. However, I also love if it's like a universe that's really well built that I'm super interested in. I love spending a lot of time there and reading a lot of books in that universe. And so mm. there are a couple series where they are written as like various trilogies or quadrilogies, um, but that are all set in the same universe. Mm -hmm. So like the Percy Jackson series is yep. a really good example of that. So you can read like a trilogy that's set in that world, and then you can read a different trilogy that features different characters, but uh, the same world. Um, also, and this is an adult series, but the Discworld series by Terry Pratchett does the okay. same thing. Um, and then one of my favorite series of all time uh, is the fantasy series uh, The Realm of the Elderlings by Robin Hobb. Oh, oh, I love those books so much. And there's 16 of them. So, yeah, no, no. <laughs> it, but you you made an interesting point there. And do, so I do wonder if it maybe has something to do with fantasy books. And, and everybody knows how I feel about that. <laughs> um, and so where I'm really like super plot driven in a book. So I, I wonder sometimes maybe if like those shorter, like, I don't know. I wonder if for some people if it's based on their genre of love of a book i don't know i definitely think that fantasy and fantasy fans kind of work that way mm -hmm. like they want to hang out in that world because yeah. it's just a super fun place to be hmm. so you need lots and lots of words and lots and lots of books <laughs> in lots yeah lots of lots of lots of pages that's probably why i also stay away from those but 
Well, needless to say, the final gambit will be added to my to-be-read pile. And speaking of TBRs, uh, that has me thinking about the 2022 anticipated reads. So I scoured a few of the usual sites that uh, tend to compile this information. And here are some of the top titles. Um, no Filters and Other Lies by Crystal Maldonado. These Deadly Games by uh, Diana Urban. Bitter by Aquaki Amezi. I always say that wrong, and I'm so wrong. sorry. Uh, but this is like a prequel to the author's previous book, Pet. Uh, All My Rage by uh, Sabah Tahir, and Ballard and Dagger, Outlaw Saints Book One by uh, Daniel Jose Older. I guess this is the first YA of the Rick Riordan Presents line, which I think is kind of interesting. So I think this one's going to be pretty popular with some of the teens here um, in Goffstown. But there's like 37 more books that all sound awesome. I just gave a few. Uh, check out the Goffstown Public Library Teen Facebook page because I will be adding a link to uh, show you the 40 of the most anticipated titles of 2022. And Goffstown Teens, the first three that I said today are available at the library right now as we record. So come check them out. All right. I also thought I really wanted to talk about YA as a genre, but... We need to get on with our, our books. So, um, you know, I want to give a little history about young adult books because I don't recall books being called this when I was a teen. Like, I don't remember it being called a young adult book, I guess. I, I don't know. Um, but I know you all want to get on with a book this month. So, Liz, we're going to talk about this in our podcast next month. We're going to give a little brief history about the YA genre. Okay. Cool. Good to know. Good to know. I'm, I'm letting you know in advance. <laughs> yes. All right. So now without further ado then, let's get into an awesome discussion about Kendare Blake's All These Bodies. It's a 4.5 stars for me. Um, I would give it a similar rating, 4.5 mm. stars. I really enjoyed this book. Uh, it's a dark, suspenseful crime story that has a bit of a supernatural twist. Or does it? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. It's kind of the central question of the book. I can't tell you much more without running into spoilers, which trust me, you do not want. Right. Uh, but it will be up for you to decide once you've read the book for yourself. Uh, so All These Bodies takes place in the summer of 1958, when a string of murders has been taking place across the Midwest. What makes these murders especially strange is that the victims are left drained completely of blood. There are no... Uh, witnesses or survivors to any of these murders until the murder of the carlson family in black deer falls minnesota the crime scene looks just like all the others except they find a 15 year old girl that no one knows standing in the house covered in blood is she another victim or is she an accomplice of the murderer this teenager marie Catherine hale agrees to tell what happened to one person only michael jensen the son of the local sheriff and a wannabe reporter Marie spins a story so strange it's almost unbelievable. But everyone in town is coming up with their own stories to explain the situation yeah. as well. So it's up to Michael and to the reader to decide who to believe. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, there's oh. a lot of dun, dun, duns <laughs> in this book. <laughs> I love that. Um, it, you, you summed it up really, really great. Um, it, let's get on to our hits. <laughs> Because okay. I think some of the things I'm thinking like that are just going through my brain. When I love a book so much, sometimes it's just – I can't even get the words out that I want to say because <laughs> I'm just so excited about it. Uh, and that's how I feel right now. Like just so much is going through my mind super, super fast. But 
All right. Now, I feel like that's a good problem to have generally, but a terrible problem to have on a podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Reel me in. Let's get back. Let's get back. Okay. All right. So, so hits. Talking about things that we loved. I loved so much. I loved the tone of the book. Um, and by that, I mean the author does an amazing job showing us mm. or showing us demonstrating the feelings that are bubbling around this small town in the middle of this horrible, horrible event. You get a real sense of like the town, the townspeople's like their heartbreak over the death of this young family, the, their frustration when the investigation isn't being solved quickly enough. Uh, and like the anger and then finally like the need for someone to pin this all on. And you feel all of that from our narrator, Michael, as well. Yeah. You know, like he he starts off almost a bit excited because this is I mean, he's he's sad. Obviously, it's terrible. But like this is his opportunity to do something that no one else can do. It's his ticket to go to journalism school. Um, and then he just sort of spirals into frustration and confusion yeah. and anger. And it's really, really well done. Um, it's very suspenseful and there's a lot of tension that's just like slowly building and building throughout the book. Um, it also feels very, uh, real and grounded. You recognize all of these characters. They're very much like people that you know, so that when something unusual or possibly supernatural does happen, mm -hmm. it really throws you for a loop. Exactly. And it leaves you wondering like, what even is the genre of this book? And it, and it was done so well. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Uh, I think part of the reason this worked so well is that she used the setting of um, a small town as a character. And I'm becoming more and more in love with the development of setting as character. Uh, and Blake knocked it out of the park here. The reader experiences the small town feel, complete with, you know, that everyone knows everyone until you realize maybe you don't know everyone because... Maybe there's some secrets that you don't know about everyone, uh, you know, and everyone has their secrets, right? And then everyone in the small town loves you. Hello, neighbor. I love you. I love you until they don't love you anymore because maybe you're not moving fast enough in the investigation or maybe you're not um, acting a certain way towards Marie that they think you should be acting towards Marie. So, you know, then, you know, that's that small town thing. And, you know, small towns, no one's locking their doors until everybody is locking their doors because what's going on here? So I just love that. Yeah, there's definitely that element of, like you mentioned, like they sort of don't believe that, like what's happening. Like yeah. all of a sudden they're part of this like huge national story and it like doesn't necessarily sink in right yeah. away. And you can completely believe that because like, you don't expect these giant national events to be happening in your backyard. And like, how would you react? Right. Um, yeah. So that was fantastically done. It was. So, you know, the small town persona added to the tension. And I think it's a smoldering tension. I'm going to, I think I'm going to say that probably later again, because I kept thinking that in my mind. Um, and possibly, I don't know. I feel like the small town could also be looked at as a villain, but that's just my own opinion here. <laughs> and I don't think the book would have been the same or had that same feel without it. Yeah, def um, definitely, because there's a lot in this book about defying defying expectations. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's normally said in a very good way. And I, I don't necessarily mean it in that way. I just mean, like, this town, like you mentioned, has very set expectations for how people should act and yeah. who they are. Mm -hmm. um, and when you sort of cross that, you find out that the people in this town have very strong reactions. Yeah. And they come up with their own stories to explain why. Exactly. Very well said. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I absolutely loved was the ending, uh, which I can't even tell you about because of spoilers. <laughs> but um, 
So all I'll say is that you will truly have no idea how this book is going to turn out. There's like, as it's building tension and building suspense, mm -hmm. and it keeps you off kilter enough that you truly don't know what's going to happen. And then even after it ends, there is still a lot to think about. There are still questions that you have to answer for yourself. Now, I'm totally a fan of an ending like that. Um, but uh, according to the internet... <laughs> Not everyone else is. Apparently, that's a controversial opinion. According um, to the socials. Yeah. So, Stacy, <laughs> what did you think about the ending? Well, I love the ending as well. And I and I, I think that most people want like a definitive closure to a book, a neat and tidy ending where you can check off the boxes, right? You know, you know there was a murder. Check. Um, a suspect was apprehended. Check. Uh, this is what happened and why. Check, check, check. Uh, and you're not going to get that necessarily, I think, in this book. Yes, so that, this is not an episode no, of Law and Order. It's not. It's not. Which is coming back, the original, by the way. But um, oh, I'm aware. Yeah, I believe though it's written this way on purpose, and and I'm going to tell you why. But it's been being a, like a long-winded kind of kind <laughs> of way. So follow me here, listeners. Follow me. All right. The writing. The writing had a true crime feel to it. Uh, I almost thought it was, as I was reading it, I actually felt like I was almost listening to, like in my brain, a podcast, a crime podcast, or like a Dateline episode, you know, where there's a compelling mystery and there's this investigation, but with the narration, there's a um, periodic repeating to remind you like, okay, so here we are. This is what, like, bring you up to date. Here's what happened. Remember that, you know, kind of thing. So I, I felt the writing was like that. Um, and Michael is telling us what has happened after the fact, right? So the reader knows the outcome of some things already, and that adds to that smoldering tension. Well, mention, I think part of the reason the writing felt so much like that is mm. because Michael is writing it as a reporter. Exactly. Like, this is very much framed like a story that yep. he is writing. Um, and also, um, I will talk later about parts of the story being inspired by In Cold Blood by mm. Truman Capote. Yep. Um, which is a famous, famous book about a real murder that happened. And Truman Capote described his book as, oh, what was it called? Uh, a nonfiction novel, which is kind of the same vibe yeah. you get here, where it feels very real. It feels like we're uncovering facts right. in the way that, you know, In Cold Blood did. Yeah. But also all the in-between bits, like the, you know, conversations, the word-from-word -word conversations are all made up they're all made up yeah and should you um, be interested in that book that liz just talked about we do have it here in the nonfiction section at the goffstown public library i pulled it off the shelf the other day because i was so curious but let's go on to my wandering about <laughs> it's okay so i, I want to put that some time ago i was talking to some teens that had come into the library and they had told me that for an english assignment uh, that their class was listening to a true crime podcast. And even though um, it was an ex an assignment, they were super excited and they just kept talking about the case with me. Uh, I think the writing in the book would captivate that type of teen audience right there um, because it has that gritty investigative feel to it. They also told me that part of their English assignment was listening to the details of the case, taking the evidence or lack thereof, and then uh, coming to a conclusion of whether or not uh, someone was guilty or just a conclusion as, as to the case itself. Uh, and they had to support their stance. And I think this book does that to the reader. So that's my, like, we're kind of circling back around now here. Uh, you, you're left going at the end. Is um, Marie an evil person that murdered in cold blood? Uh, is she a young girl that made choices due to extenuating circumstances and is left picking up the pieces? 
Uh, is there something supernatural going on? It, it, you know, it's a great combination of weighing urban legend against plausibility. And the reader, all the reader has is Michael's recollection of what was happening in his town at the time and what Marie told him about the events. So, and I believe the author wants the reader to analyze what is known based on what Marie has shared, what she's confessed of the case, and then synthesize through Michael, our um, would-be journalist, and then come up with their own conclusions. Yeah, I think something to keep in mind if you do decide to read this book is to try to keep your own opinions yeah. separate from Michael's. Mm-hmm. Because Michael Ooh, obviously point. is informing you know us with his own opinions, opinions. like the way he sees Marie. Right. And you might have a different opinion yeah. if you're trying to look at you know just the facts of the case. So that was part of the story that really appealed to me. Um, but if we want to talk about things we did not like as much, <laughs> okay, I have one of those. Although it's it's not even really it's not even really a true miss. It's just something that occurred to me that stood out a couple times that made me think. Hmm, I wonder why that choice was made and mm. how the book could have been different otherwise. Okay, and that was the choice to have it uh, narrated by a teenage boy. Um. So an important theme in the book is how society treats young women like Marie in the media and sort of the inherent sexism in the way that her case is handled and the way that women in this town, in this country, in the media are And maybe even the time period, because, you know, the the book is 1958, right? So, you know. a huge part of it. And so, like, Michael, Michael's a great narrator. Michael's a lovely person. You will definitely come away Mm -hmm. liking Michael. But at the same time, he is a teenage boy in 1958. And he understands some things Mm -hmm. about Marie's situation. And to me, I felt like there were definitely other things he did not understand. So maybe naive, maybe thinking of him naive at age 17. Okay. You know, it's it's something, there are all sorts of things that, you know, some people, some groups of people have to pay very close attention Mm. to that other groups of people don't have to pay very close attention to. Yeah. Um, And so it doesn't reflect badly on him. But, um, so, uh, to backtrack a little bit. <laughs> so sorry. sorry. <laughs> so the whole book, in talking about the inherent sexism in the media, is everyone in the story is basically becomes obsessed with deciding, you know, is Marie a victim or is she an accomplice? Right. And tied up with that is, is Marie a good girl or is she a fast girl? Yeah. Like, is she, you know, this innocent little child or is she a seductress mm-hmm. who, you know, is seducing men into, you know, doing murder? Um and tied up again with that is choosing to believe her or not believe her yep you know yeah um and so there were a couple like moments in the book which the author definitely included so that we would understand you know further like the sexism in it Mm -hmm. that michael notices but doesn't really to me it seemed like he just noticed them in passing he didn't really seek to understand them okay. it didn't like stop him in his tracks mm-hmm. we didn't see him like learn that lesson like um there's an example of there's a moment where he notices that his mother has given marie uh lipstick before yes. she goes into trial and then his mother is worried that the lipstick looks too dark and michael notices this but doesn't really think any further about it but i think we the reader can read between the lines a little bit and understand that you know, his mother gave Marie the lipstick because the jury would expect Marie to be put together and wearing lipstick. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if she's wearing too much lipstick, if it's too dark, then she's going to look, you know, inappropriately sexy. Right. And the jury will think badly of her because of that. Yeah. Um, and so I, I really didn't get the sense that Michael 
cottoned on to all these things. Hmm. I see what you're saying. I think I think I saw it a little bit differently. Um, but I, I understand. So I, I don't know if it necessarily flew under Michael's radar, but that may be... I don't know if he was put into the story so that it made it probable of why Marie chose him because she recognized something different about him. And he even actually says this several times, you know, about himself within his classmates and others and wanting to leave the small town, right? So he has a little bit of some small town trope in here, right? Because he wants to leave his small town. But that that he didn't always feel like he fit in. So I don't know if maybe some of that was, was in there. He's maybe the author putting him a little bit younger than his time. I don't know. Um, I also think that for Michael, that maybe he was put there because he hadn't had, he wasn't, I don't want to say corrupted by these thoughts from, you know, all the other people in the community around him, but, but maybe, you know, he hadn't been corrupted by these inherent beliefs yet that women um, are liars, like they say inside the book from some people, or that they're using their sexy tricks to manipulate men. You know, I think that Pilsen, the DA um, from Nebraska, definitely liked to hammer some of this stuff home. Um, And I don't think that Michael necessarily missed these things. You know, he mentioned something about the lipstick and the way that the camera caught Marie making a smile with her lipstick. And her smile wasn't because... She was, you know, um, not remorseful about what happened. Her smile was, I think there was a joke or she had heard something that just made her smile. And of course, at that right time, the, you know, photographer took a picture of her and that's what goes into the front page, right? Yeah, I think if I'm remembering, a reporter said something yes. like, specifically to try to like rattle right. her and she was kind of like smirking. Smirking and the, and, at the right moment. Yeah, the right moment. So again, that, you know, gives people a... a a view of her. And so I think Michael picked up on that a little bit, but you're right. Maybe it wasn't fleshed out enough. Yeah. Well, I, mm, sorry. I think <laughs> we're going, we're going to battle here, folks. No, just <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. And I definitely think that he was more sensitive to these things than a lot of the other characters that yeah. we encounter might have been. Mm-hmm. We're really inside Michael's head though. So we don't yeah, fully, yeah, know. we don't though. No, but, um, the only reason that that sort of stood out to me is because it did make me wonder if, mm. Um, you know, as a reader, if because these things are sort of reading between the lines, if a reader might miss them or mm. not notice the importance of them in the way that Michael did. Yeah. And it made me also wonder how this book might be different if it was narrated by a woman. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's an interest. I think that's a really, really, that's a curiosity right there. Like, yes. how would, right? How would it have been different if the narrator was a woman? Um, I I yeah. like thinking that. Yeah, so for next time as an exercise, I'll rewrite the book from a woman's <laughs> point of view. No, I'm kidding. I will not do that. <laughs> but it's something to think about. That is. That is something to think about. So I I didn't really have any misses either. Um, you know, I, I want to say, though, you know, we talked about um, looking at some of the socials or the review sites on the ending, right? And some people yes. not being happy with the ending. If you are um, one of those uh, readers or listeners today that may be checking out Goodreads or other reader reviews and you see all this mention of it being a vampire book, uh, and maybe you don't like vampire books like myself, um, don't let that be a turnoff because really it's not that kind of book. This isn't Twilight. This is, you know, this is not. Or is it? Well, or isn't it? You'll have or to read it? it. Or isn't it? <laughs> don't be turned off. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so... Let's move on to our curiosities because there there was there's some fun ones here. 
Uh, yeah, depending on your definition of fun. There were some interesting ones. I think, as you'll so see, to call them fun, fun is maybe... Yeah, fun not... <laughs> you know what I mean, people. Um, because my first curiosity <laughs> about the book was the murders. Um, so, you know, super fun, Stacey. No, murder, um, not not fun, though we keep reading these books. But yeah, curiosities that were interesting. super interesting, right? Just really great to go down that rabbit trail and keep investigating and finding out more. Yes. Um, That's the fun part, the investigating. <laughs> You're a real true crime fan. <laughs> I am. All right. So uh, wondering about this book, the, I immediately wondered if the author had been inspired by any real life serial killers mm-hmm. because it is so down to earth like Mm -hmm. it's so grounded it feels very realistic so i really thought that it was probably drawing from somewhere and um lo and behold the bloodless murders from the book uh were based on the killings of charles starkweather in 1957 through 1958 obviously he didn't leave behind bodies drained of Mm -hmm. blood but the similarity was in that he was accompanied on this killing spree by his 14 year old girlfriend carol ann fulgate um, you guys can't see my notes, but you should know that girlfriend here has quotes around it because she was 14 and he was 19, and that's definitely not okay. Yeah. Um, and so the author drew on Carol's story for all these bodies. Um, she's a very like similar stand-in to Marie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carol pleaded innocent at her trial. Um, she claimed that she was being held hostage and that Starkweather was threatening her family. Um, but the jury didn't believe her ultimately, because they decided she had too many chances to run away that she did not take. So she was eventually sentenced Mm. to life in prison, but released after 17 years. And then the main murder, the murder that uh, Michael is investigating, the murder of the Carlson family, that is actually based on, as I mentioned, uh, the murder portrayed in Truman Capote's book, In Cold Blood, the murder of the Clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas, in 1959. Uh, and in that situation, it was a well-off farmer, his wife, and their two teenage kids, and they were killed by two ex-convicts who believed that Clutter kept a large safe full of cash. Spoiler, he did not, and they left the crime scene with only $50. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Ah. Burn. Uh, the author mentions in the author's note that she used In Cold Blood as inspiration for how the investigation and the trial were handled in all these bodies. Um, yeah. So all these real world inspirations are what make the book seem like a true crime story, which I absolutely mm-hmm. loved, especially when it was combined with the maybe, maybe not supernatural elements. Yeah. I love all the um, research, I think, that goes into making books like this and just, you know, uh, what authors do to... Um, carry on with their inspiration and then just make the writing so grounded and so realistic. And so I, it's just amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, like I haven't, I haven't read in cold blood, but now mm. I very much want to. Right. And I was also reading that Truman Capote spent six years writing it. No way. Yeah. Wow. He compiled like pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of notes. And then he, you know, wrote his own book over the course of six years. Huh. So if she is drawing from all of his research, well done piggybacking on that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> well, it's not, you know, like we said, it's not a surprise that Kandari Blake found inspiration for this book um, off of two great real historical crimes. And remember, always read the author's notes because there's so much great information there. Um, and there is author's notes at the end of this story. And so you'll want to check that out. Uh, but within the story, um, there's also uh, someone mentioned named Mercy Brown. And uh, Marie tells um, the story to Michael about Mercy Brown and 
lo and behold, that is also a true story itself. I, you know, when I was reading it in here, I was like, oh, I wonder if Mercy Brown's true, like a real person. And I got on, started doing the Googling, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is real too. So that got me started wondering about vampire crimes. But before we go on to my vampire crimes, Liz needs to talk about Mercy Brown right now. I here. do. I do need to talk yes. about Mercy Brown a little bit more. Um, Stacy did call dibs on um, researching Mercy Brown, but uh, I also got very excited about it. And She's I went excited. out and I found a bunch more information about <laughs> vampire scares in specifically New England. So Mercy Brown's was the best documented. Mm-hmm. But let's see. Rachel Harris, Abigail Staples, Sarah Tillinghast, and let me turn the page, Nancy Young, uh, we're all like victims of this vampire scare over the, in the 1800s. Yeah. Crazy. Um, and it, they all had so many similarities. Like Mercy Brown, they all had tuberculosis, mm-hmm. which at the time was only known as consumption. Yeah. It was a disease that made them people look like they were wasting away with no particular cause. And so all of these uh, victims, after they died, were, you know, accused of their siblings got sick from the mm-hmm. same disease and they were accused of sucking the life force away from their siblings yep. from the grave, just like Mercy Brown. Um, and so that was really interesting. The other really interesting point is that, oh, look, they're all young women. So sort of makes you think. And the other thing that makes you think is that this vampire scare vanished around the early 1900s, like never really to be heard from again. Coincidentally, that was also around the time that the origins of tuberculosis and how to stop the spread of it were being studied. So there you go. Modern medicine, you know, but, but right. I think that before, um, medicine could, and scientific things could explain, um, these types of phenomenon that many thought it was supernatural, right? That it was, you know, something with witchcraft or vampires or, you know, uh, something within the groundwater, you know, it was always something that was beyond or, or God punishing that, you know, there was a spiritual nature to it instead of just possibly the scientific medicine. Yeah, and, and, and instead of just, hey, oh. your sibling got sick with the thing that killed, you and, know. And the, you all live together, and it's kind of dirty also yeah. where you live, and there's not, you know. I understand the need. You know, we all want answers. We all right. want to explain the things mm-hmm. that go terribly wrong. I do feel like vampire is a weird well to go to when trying to create these stories. That's a little out there, but but not. There you go. But what we have found out in our research is that's not exactly true. <laughs> like vampire was what was went what uh, people went to, and so I'm going to back up a little bit about um, this article that I found um, on the Mental Floss website called Eight Real Life Vampire Crimes," and I'm telling you that because. Um, it, there's some gory information within here, so I don't want to really read too much about that, but I'll let you go and uh, search that out and read those accounts on your own if you'd like to. Um, so one that I am super excited about is actually the, the number one um, person that's talked about in the article, the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. So an early adopter of the vampire defense was Countess Elizabeth Bathory. She was a member of the Hungarian royal family whose cruelty toward her female servants was said to have included drenching them in water and leaving them to freeze to death outside in winter. It wasn't until 1609, following the murder of a young nobleman, in which Bathory staged to look like a suicide, that she was actually held accountable for her crimes. So it's different to uh, separate, they say, fact from fiction. And, you know, I'm reading right from the article right here. But the legend suggests that she 
um, killed more than 650 women. Oh, my goodness. I know. And that she bathed in their blood, which she believed thought that they would have restorative powers. So very bizarre. Um, some of her servants were also charged with um, helping her out and with 80 counts of murder. And she, the countess died under house arrest before she was ever brought to trial. But this is the part here, people. In the book, Dracula Was a Woman, historian Raymond T. McNally claims that Bathory was in part the inspiration for Bram Stoker's famous bloodsucker. And I just found that fascinating. That is fascinating. I'm kind of stuck on the idea of like, how, how difficult must it have been to find 650 women to kill? I don't know. <laughs> right? That's a staggering... She must be very yeah, organized. I don't... It, it is. And so lest you think that, that these vampire um, murders were in the 1600s or, you know, 1924, because that's where some of them are as well. But no, we actually do have more that um, 2011... Um, if you're wondering what a real life vampire thinks of Twilight, then <laughs> you could um, learn about Cassius Domitius. I'm not going to say his last name, but he, uh, he has a very firm opinion. Um, Pop culture inspires me to vomit hot blood, he says. He wrote this in a letter to a Massachusetts Berkshire Eagle newspaper in 2011. He is, um, was set to stand trial in early 2014 for the abduction and murder of three men in Massachusetts and was convicted um, on other things for charges in Maine. Um, and he basically ritually drank blood. Um, yeah. Uh, he has a forked um, tongue, sharpened teeth, implanted horns. And um, he says, I've never seen this silly movie, he continued, nor have I read the books. Nor would I ever, even now, waste my time with such useless drivel. I'm really Point disappointed. Taken. I really wanted to read his review. <laughs> so was very into yeah, it. Um, yeah, definitely. And then there's actually a female also, um, Josephine Smith. I'm not going to read all of that one, but that's also a 2011. So she um, basically said that she is a vampire. And um, yeah, that's what she was telling people. She's a vampire. So that's that's fine. Just don't yeah. kill anyone. Well, yeah. So they were vampire murders, so you can go and read those. But uh, it, more common than we think, right? Apparently. I know. And, and then I started thinking about urban legend, right? Because we're, we're also talking to you about um, making up your own opinion as you read this book about what some people, what the town kind of thought was going on, what Marie might say is going on, what Michael thinks is possibly going on, just what's going on. What the journalists who are telling yeah. the story across the country are thinking is going on, what yeah. the lawyers who are trying to defend her or prosecute her think is going on. So, lots of different points of view. Lots of different points of view. So I just started thinking about like urban legends in general, and which brought me to an article um, at insider.com. It gives a little synopsis of creepy urban legends from every state. Here is New Hampshire's. Ooh. The Witch of Hampton, Goody Cole. Eunice Goody Cole was the only woman in New Hampshire history to be tried for witchcraft multiple times. Her first charge was in 1656, and she was charged again in 1671. When she died and her body was recovered, the townspeople were rumored to have staked her through the heart to prevent her from haunting, from haunting their town. People continue to blame Goody Cole for misfortunes of the Hampton citizens for the past 300 years. For example, a boat full of Hampton residents overturned and everyone on board drowned, even though they were in within swimming distance to the shore. 
people blamed Goody Cole for the crash and for cursing the passengers by having them forget how to swim. I mean, if you drove a stake through my heart, I would be <laughs> mad for a long time also. Like, I don't, I don't really believe that this is, you know, really what happened. But yeah. I, if it did, hypothetically, I would also be very angry for centuries. Yeah. So something to think about when you're enjoying your summer vacation at Hampton Beach this year. But um, anyway, yeah, those were some interesting, interesting things I went down the rabbit hole. So, yeah. All right. Um, I had many other curiosities as well, and some of them were really, really simple. So I, I'll let you know. I, sometimes I like the deep dive into the research. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I'm just like, hmm, what is with that? And my mind just starts to go somewhere. And that happened in this book as well. So I'm going to talk to you about names. My Something about names in this book just kept uh, coming. And sometimes I, I wonder why an author chose a certain name. Um, is it a nod to something that loosely relates to the book? Uh, you know, or is it something that like is nostalgic to them? So for example, the name Michael. That's our resolute teen journalist in here. And let me also say, there's a part in the book, All These um, Bodies, and I'm going to read it, but that further pushed my curiosity to this thinking of mine, okay? So on page 212, do you know where I'm going here, Liz? I don't. I saw this in your notes, and Hmm. I was excited to find out. Okay, well, here we go. So on page uh, 212, Michael is, um, there is a point in the book where there um some pebbles thrown out his window and mm-hmm. and there is some discussion about who was doing that what has exactly happened and or that's what or if it happened and so michael says in here but there was still a crack in the glass of my window and i've never been a sleepwalker i asked marie about it in a roundabout way but even she said i was imagining things He couldn't have come into your house unless you invited him in, Michael, and you didn't invite him, did you? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) I had to do that. Sorry. No, it was coming. (laughs) Yes. I felt it. But here's where I'm going. I have to change one, first of all, my dislike of vampires. Because, 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 because there is one vampire movie that is so nostalgic to me, Lost Boys, that I do actually love that. And it is about vampires. So I, that's a love. But in it, Michael is the older son that ends up becoming embedded with a gang of vampires. So in the movie Lost Boys, there's a Michael. Max, this other guy in the movie, he's the vampire ringmaster. He says something like this to Michael. Don't ever invite a vampire into your house, silly boy. It renders you powerless. Oh, there you go. Ah, ha, ha. So Max wasn't allowed in until Michael invited him in. This is in the movie, The Lost Boys. And readers, I want you to keep that Lost Boys quote in your mind. It renders you powerless. That was mind-blowing to me as uh, in some aspects of some things that happen and are talked about. Multiple meanings. Yes. Couldn't it? Yeah. That was there right there. Okay. Well, I have a much less, uh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) We'll use that as a descriptive word, uh, explanation for his last name. Okay. So his last name and the sheriff's last name is Jensen. Yes. And in the movie of In Cold Blood, not in the book, because he's not a real person, but in the movie In Cold Mm -hmm. Blood, uh, they introduced a reporter character called Bill Jensen. No. Yeah. See? Names. Names. I just, why? <laughs> so I have another name. Oh, I know. 
The second name is Hale. Okay, so Marie calls herself, she introduces, you know, herself as Marie Catherine Hale. And Hale stuck out to me. Again, do you know where I'm going here? Do you? This one I do know. Okay. This one I do. All right. <laughs> well, I'm going to the Salem witch trials, right? John Hale was the Puritan pastor um, that took part in the Salem witch trials. And at one point during those trials, his second wife, uh, Sarah Hale, is actually accused of being a witch as well. Um, anyway, something about using Hale as a last name in all these bodies was curious to me. I don't know. Was it to signify the witch hunt that Pilsen, the DA from Nebraska, had on making Marie pay? I don't know. I don't know. Just, I don't know. It's curious. So, that's a great explanation. Isn't it? <laughs> so I, those are just some things sometimes I'm like, huh, why didn't author use this? Where did, where could this go? Where, I don't, you know, yeah. That's that. I'm, well, Stacy's mind is blown. My mind's blown. <laughs> so we're going to close it up for you, though. Let's bring it all home. So we really do love talking about books and the different things that one can discover when they allow themselves to indulge in the curiosities and ponderings that leap off the book pages into their minds. Uh, so we had so many exciting things to share today, and I can't wait to find out what we discover in next month's book. I'm taking us full circle here because we opened talking about the to-be-read pile. And we're going to close talking about a to-be-read pile. <laughs> so I have had a book on my TBR pile for about a year now. And finally, it's making the leap off the pile and into my hands. Because next month, Liz and I will be discussing Love is a Revolution by Renee Watson. Have you ever lied to impress someone? What happens when the lies start to become hard to sustain? Meet Harlem teenager Nala, who reluctantly agrees to attend an open mic night and falls instantly in love with the event's MC, Ty Brown. Now, Nala is looking forward to a chill summer of movies and ice cream. But Ty is spending his summer advocating for his community. Wanting to get close to Ty, Nala pretends to be a social activist. But the deeper she falls, the more Nala wants Ty to love her for who she really is. So thank you for listening to the Curious Reader Podcast. We are always grateful when you tune in, and don't forget to review us on Podbean or in your favorite podcast app. Your reviews, plus liking and subscribing, help others discover our podcast. So please click that heart or give us a thumbs up to share the love of reading and discovering something new. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book. <laughs>